Would you pray with me, God and Father, as we come to consider your word um, and seek to just hear you speak to us and hear your calling on our lives, we pray that you and your spirit would be near to us. Be near to us sinners as we sit under your word and wrestle with it. Be near to me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've been preaching through the book of Romans. I know some of you have gotten very used to that, and we're taking a break for this week and next week for reasons that will become apparent as we go along this morning, or that you may have deduced already. Um, but, but um, So bear with me just for these two weeks as we take a break, but we're going to talk about some important stuff. And what we're going to talk about this morning is this scripture reading from Acts, but you might have noticed that it picks up in the middle of the story. So let me just tell you, here's what's happening before what we just read in the book of Acts, okay? So Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and um, he appeared before he did to several hundred different early Christians. And as he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, he told them they were to go on this this mission to all of the world, but he also told them that that mission wasn't supposed to start quite yet, and that instead first they were supposed to return to Jerusalem and wait for this divine helper that he was going to send. And so they go back to Jerusalem, and they're excited because, hey, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and that seems like a pretty big deal, but they're also kind of um, scared because Jesus therefore isn't here anymore, and they're wondering what comes next. And so the apostles, Jesus' disciples, and these other early Christians, they're meeting in this upstairs room of this house, and they're praying together, and something happens, and there's this great rush of wind, and these little tongues of flame that represent God's purifying presence appear, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spill out into the streets of Jerusalem, unable to to keep from proclaiming this good news that Jesus has raised from the dead, that he's Lord. And there are all of these people gathered in Jerusalem, all of these Jewish people and Jewish converts from all over the nation for this um, holiday. And so all these people speak all these different languages, but as the apostles and early Christians start to proclaim this good news, everyone hears this preaching in their own language. It's like the, the Tower of Babel and the scattering of the nations is somehow being undone, and needless to say, that freaks people out, and so some of the people are like, well, clearly these people are just drunk, um, which doesn't actually make any sense of them speaking in all the languages if you think about it, but that's, you know, when you encounter that kind of thing, I guess, hey, like, what are you going to come up with? Um, But Peter gets up, and he says, no, that's not, you know, that's not what's happening. Let me tell you what's going on, and he preaches this barn burner of a sermon, which is most of Acts chapter 2, and where we pick up is just as he finishes that sermon. They hear him preach the sermon, and a bunch of people are intrigued by it. And so verse 37, where we started reading, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And it is Peter's answer to that question and the results of that answer that are really what I want us to talk about this morning. What shall we do in response to Jesus's message? And as we walk through this reading, I want to, what I want us to do is just kind of, I want to suggest there are really like three big ideas, three ideas that kind of fit together in the picture of the way that I think this passage answers that question. Those three ideas that fit together, and then we're just going to talk about two applications, and one of those is just a general, and then the other one is the specific reason that we're going to be, or that we're talking about that this morning, all right? So we'll get there, but let's get started through the text. 
So three big ideas. The first one, I think, the first big idea you see in this text is that we are saved as individuals. We are saved as individuals. And you see that in Peter's immediate reply to the question that he's asked. These people ask him, what shall we do? And so in verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent, he says first, acknowledge your sin and grieve it and own it. Admit your need and the fact that you particularly fall short and are guilty. Repent and be baptized, right? Baptism is here because there's this new moment in Jesus' story and there's this new sign to mark God's people now that Jesus has been resurrected. And so as they repent, they're called to be baptized. And both of those things, the repentance and the baptism, they're doing in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So he's not saying just like do these couple of acts, but these acts are their way of acting out this sort of belief in Jesus Christ, and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And then lastly, he promises them the gift of the Holy Spirit, that God would dwell within them through his Spirit. And you could preach a whole bunch of sermons on those ideas. We've preached sermons on some of them. But the point that I'd like us to notice today is that those are, those are all the things that each of these individual hearers are being called to. Everyone who hears Peter's message is called, as an individual, to do that stuff. There's something that is easy to miss about this call, but the people that Peter is speaking to, they are all like Jewish people or Jewish converts. They're outwardly part of this, you know, religious people of God, right? They've come, they've, they've gone, come on this pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem, many of them, because of their kind of outward religious faith, okay? They're not irreligious people that Peter is speaking to, but in verse 40, what he says to them is, it says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So these people who would have seen this great like hope and this kind of religious confidence in this group that they claimed to belong to, he's, he's saying you still need to be saved from this group that you're a part of, this corrupt generation. All of which should stress that our salvation and our Christianity is something that each of us has to embrace for ourselves. We aren't in this thing in God's people just because we live in the United States or the Midwest. We aren't in this thing just because when someone asks, you know, well, what religion are you? We say, oh, I'm a Christian. We aren't in this thing just because our names are on the membership rolls of some church or because we've been born into some family or any of that. If Christianity isn't in something that each of us embraces for ourselves, then we aren't in it. We, um, without that individual Embrace were still part of what Peter was referring to as that corrupt generation. Now, there's a but coming if you can't guess that, right? We're going to say however in just a moment and then talk about something that goes alongside that. But, but that however cannot, cannot undermine the reality that we just stated, that we're saved as individuals, okay? One of the most important questions that each of us has to ask is, do I believe this thing for myself? Am I trusting in Jesus personally? Have I repented of my sins? Because if you don't do that, none of the rest of what we're about to talk about, which is kind of going to, you know, say some other things, none of that will matter if you haven't done this first. If you haven't embraced this thing for yourself from the heart, you're not a Christian. I mean, not in the way that the Bible talks about that word. 
The fact that you show up to church on Sunday is wonderful, and I'm glad you're here, but that doesn't make you a Christian any more than than walking into a hospital makes you a doctor, right? The fact that your family believes this doesn't make you a Christian any more than the fact that my father-in-law is a doctor means that you should come to us for good medical advice, right? It's something you have to embrace for yourself. But, But there is something else that we need to recognize alongside that. And you start getting a hint of that in verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized. They're individually doing these things. And then about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They're somehow becoming a part of this group as they make this individual choice. They believe and are baptized and are added to the number of God's people, the church. See, The second big idea that goes alongside the first is that while we are saved as individuals, we are saved into a community. We're saved into a community. We find our membership in that group of people. You start to see that in verse 39 in Peter's message. So he he calls them to this thing as individuals, but then he says, The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Versus promises for you and your children. And that's a direct echo of the language that God uses in the Old Testament when he talks about his people Israel. So for instance, in Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant, my promise, with, as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So while we are saved as individuals, there's still this people of God that God's seeking to constitute that inc- that's generational and includes us and our families and the people after us. And that doesn't mean that we don't individually have to <laughs> trust in Jesus to be saved, because we do. But it also means that we're being constituted into a people of God in a way that's really similar to the way that, that Israel looked in the Old Testament, that, that we are this, this, there's this thing that we're being gathered into and are a part of. And it's also, he says, for those who are far off. So not just a message for these people here, but people from all nations, all kinds of people, that the promise is also for them, and they're being called by God, which already, I think, starts to give you this hint that we're talking about something more than just individuals living separate individual lives, and then that helps us make sense of the picture that we go on to get, starting in verse 42, of what the early church looks like in Acts. So these people... Um, do what Peter says, and immediately this community forms. And just, just walk through it li- with me and listen to, to what this community looks like, starting in verse 42. So these, first, these new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which for them is what amounted to scripture, right? The New Testament, as we have it, is the written-down teaching of the apostles in different letters and places. So they commit themselves to that and to fellowship, so to being and living together, to the breaking of bread which probably means the Lord's Supper here, actually. Um, It's clear that they ate together, and that's mentioned even later in the passage, but that specific language isn't in this world probably means the Lord's Supper. And they committed themselves to prayer together. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together. That means regularly. They're living their lives in this way that's interconnected with each other and had everything in common. Which doesn't, I think some people read this part of it, and it's not like socialism exactly, because we're not talking about politics, right? We're talking about the church. 
But it is the case that they're regarding their possessions as not just for them, but also for the community around them to serve and bless that community. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So, I mean, again, it's not exactly like socialism or something because they still own stuff, but they're also selling their stuff in order to take care of other people when those people had need. Um, And each day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day, getting together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So it's not just that they're like, I don't know, like going to church every time the doors are open, but that they're also sharing their homes and their lives together as Christians. That's the picture we get. Let me say two things about that right away. On the one hand, not all of that has to translate identically and directly to our world for us to be faithful to that kind of picture. I think sometimes we read that text and we feel discouraged because it paints a picture that looks different, and even within the New Testament, different churches live out this kind of picture in somewhat different ways. But on the other hand, if we're being faithful to this, our differences from this should still be variations on those themes, that we should be opening the Bible together and praying together. We should be gathering together regularly for worship and celebrating the Lord's Supper. We should be recklessly generous with our possessions, taking care of each other as we have needs. We should be open with our homes and careful with our schedules so that we have time for each other and for this community. And I know we often fail to do that, right? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But first, let me try to describe why this needs to be said, why this picture is so important. And to start, let me give you two wrong ideas. These aren't like, these are wrong ideas in the world, but they translate into Christianity, I think. On the one hand, there is this wrong idea that you could, that people who study these things would call communitarianism, okay? This is communitarianism in Christianity. Communitarianism basically just means it's the idea that only the community matters, that individuals don't matter at all. All that matters is the group that you're a part of. And, um, the way that that works in Christianity is what we were really challenging in the first point, right? The idea that just because I'm part of some outward group in the world, I'm a Christian. It doesn't matter what I believe or how I am. And that's wrong biblically, right? Um, Most of us, I think, have a sense that that's wrong. And part of that's good and Christian, but part of the reason that we feel like that's wrong is because in our world, that's not what most of us believe. Instead, it's the the other kind of error, which is what we could call individualism. All right, individualism. I want to be that word for a few of you I know um, who've heard that before in a positive way. That word can mean a lot of different stuff. Some people just mean individualism to say like individuals matter, and they do. We said that, right? But but in individualism, it pushes further than that, and it tries to think that Christianity looks like this picture up here instead, where I'm just an individual connected to Jesus. And you are an individual connected to Jesus. And that really means we don't have anything to do with each other, right? It's me and Jesus. And at best, maybe, maybe you matter in that you can kind of help me be a better me with Jesus, right? But if you're not, then, then you don't matter at all because it's just me and him. But that, does that look anything like the picture of the church in Acts that we just read? Right? Even though I think that's how many of us internalize spirituality, that's not how Christianity pictures it itself as working. Because in Christianity, it works like this instead. We do have this idea that we are connected with Jesus as individuals, and that's crucial, right? You can't can't remove that connection that we have. But Jesus is the head of the church, right? 
He's the founder of this new humanity, this new people. And so to be connected to him means that we're a part of that group, and it means that we're therefore connected to each other as well. That you cannot be connected to Jesus without being a part of this people that he's created and so being connected to each other. And so while we have to embrace Christ as individuals, that also means that we cannot be Christians faithfully and be individualists. That a necessary part of accepting Jesus is accepting that we're a part of this people that we're called to be a part of and serve. And we'll talk more about what that means in just a minute, okay? But one more idea, because it's a third one in this text that I think really fleshes out the second one, and that's that that community spreads salvation. That community actually spreads God's salvation. So if you look at verse 47 at the end, we read, um, we read that this early community of Christians was, as a summary then, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So these early saints are being the church, but that's noticed by the people around them. As they live this kind of loving community out, people see that, and they're drawn to that, and they're ultimately drawn to Jesus through that. The Lord uses that community to actually draw people to have faith. And that's important because I think when we think about how someone becomes a Christian, right? How do you envision that? I think this is the picture we get. There's this person outside of the church that, you know, that isn't a Christian, and this other person kind of goes out of the church, and this person, you know, meets the the person who's not a Christian, and they connect with that person, and then they end up connecting that person to Jesus, right? You know, they're still outside of the circle. They get that person connected to Jesus, and that person becomes a Christian, and then finally, that person comes into the church and into the community of faith. And sometimes that is what happens, Right? In particular, when you see like the apostles and missionaries in the New Testament, that's what they're doing, right? They, they go to some city where there's no Christians, and they go preach, you know, the gospel, and people become saved, and you end up seeing the church form out of that. And some of us, that's our story, and some of us are called at different points in our lives to do that. That, that is a thing, but that's not the only way that it works. Often it works like this instead. Um, There's a Christian that's connected to a non-Christian, and because of that connection, that person outside of God's people is drawn into the community of the church first, and they develop connections with other Christians. And through those Christians, they start to see Jesus. They start to see through that community that those Christians are living out the reality of Jesus, and through that, they ultimately come to believe in and trust in him and move into relationship with Jesus. And here's the thing, those are both valid stories, right? Like, those are both good things. And some of you fit with one of those stories, and some of you fit with another one. But the reality is that often, at least that second story is at least partly true, right? It's it's very rare for people to become Christians without any connection to the community of faith. So part of the way we actually spread the gospel and draw people to Jesus is by being the kind of loving community that we're called to be. So those are the three big ideas, right? We see that question, what shall we do? And in Peter's answer, we see first that we're called to be saved as individuals, but that 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 salvation calls us into community, and that community is actually a means that God uses to spread salvation. All right? So what do we do with that? So I want to talk about two applications. One is kind of big in general, and then we'll talk about the specific one. First, the big one, all of that means in our world that we must fight for community. We must fight for community. Everything that we just said should be telling us that we need to work to do life together. Almost everything in our world pushes in the other direction. 
We live, and I don't say this kind of thing lightly because I don't like hyperbole, and the part of me that studied history back in college cringes at these sorts of statements, but I will still make the case. We live in the most individualistic age ever anywhere on the planet. In all of history, anywhere on the earth, we are probably the most individualistic society that has ever existed. Our values push us away from community. We idolize the rugged individual, right? The pioneer who goes off alone into the frontier and pulls himself up by his bootstraps and doesn't need nobody for nothing. We tell people that they should be whoever they want to be and do whatever they want to do, regardless of what it costs their communities and their families and the people around them. We talk as if as soon as relationships become hard, we should just drop them because I matter more than the person I'm in relationship with. Our values cut against community. Modern technology cuts against community. I mean, never mind the internet stuff, which is what everyone thinks about. But, like, like, do you realize that 50 years ago, like, everybody at night would just sit out on their porches and talk to each other because they didn't have, like, televisions to watch or air conditioners to keep cool? Like, even those levels of technology mean that suddenly we live isolated lives. When you, when you had to get somewhere, you would, you would walk there and you'd have to, like, wave to the neighbors and say hello to them, right? You know, I mean, whereas now we like get inside these metal boxes and put our heads down and don't look to the left or right. And then, of course, in the digital age, now you don't even have to like go to the store to get groceries because you can get them on Amazon. And even when you're with people, you can just be, you know, like looking at your phone, getting distracted, right? Modern technology in so many ways cuts against community. And a lot of other things push against community too. Our jobs and the way that the modern economy Works. More of us work more hours um, than we have for most of history, and we work those hours farther from home in ways that are often disconnected from our local communities. The fact that people are transient cuts against community. We, on average, move every four or five years in America, and compare that to a time when you know people lived in one place their whole life, right? Um, none of us expect our kids to, to grow up and live in the same place we do, it seems like, because of how transient our world is. And Our kids, I mean, they're busy too, right? Like we just live in a time that's incredibly busy with activities that we fill up our schedules with until we feel like we don't have room to breathe. And I could actually go on for a lot. There's a ton of stuff you could list that pushes against doing community. Um, Even the way just normal humans have, never mind the way that the church enacts this, okay? But if that community is something that we're called to as Christians, that means that it's going to have to be something in the face of all those challenges that we do fight for. It's easy to complain about the modern world. I do it sometimes. To wish for the good old days or to gripe about how things have changed. It's easy to complain, but um, the truth is that we're never going to put the genie back in the bottle, right? Like, things will not change tomorrow to make community easier, and wishing they would works about as well as wishing generally works. And so, too... That means that if we're going to live out Jesus' callings, that we're going to have to think hard about what that means, and sometimes do hard things, to make tough choices, or even live in ways that society regards as strange. And that's going to look different for every one of us, all right? I'm saying all this, and I'm not a fan of guilting or giving you a bunch of rules you need to follow about um, how this should look for you, right? But let me just try to give you a few examples I've seen over the years that just like are like stuck in my brain of people that I've known, right? So like I knew a guy, um, and he worked in consulting work with different businesses and things. Um, I think he still does. It's been a few years since I've talked to him. But I remember he was offered a job in a city far away from where he lived back when I knew him. 
Um, and he was offered at that job like three times as much money as he was currently making, right? Like this was, in our world, the no-brainer kind of job offer, but he wrestled with it, and he's just like, you know what, I grew up in this place, in this neighborhood, and I have kids, have had kids in these schools for years, and I've been a part of this church for like 15 years, because it was the plant and stuff, and he's like, you know what, like, I'm going to turn down this job, because I feel like I'm called to be a part of this community more than I'm called to go, you know, move to the West Coast and take this job. I mean, he turned down like six-figure <laughs> race, right, to be a part of that community. Or on a smaller scale, I remember another couple I was friends with who, I remember they had a conversation one night where they just realized that no one in their neighborhood knew each other, and so their solution was to start having Friday night meals every Friday night for years, where they would cook meatballs and invite all of the neighbors and invite a few people in the neighborhood from church and get them connected. And, I mean, I only went to one or two of those because I didn't live in the neighborhood, but they were friends of mine. But it was, I mean, people came to know Jesus through those meals, right? And people's lives were transformed as they were drawn into community with other people because these folks opened their homes. Or another couple that I was friends with who um, got rid of their TV and put um, a box in their living room where if you went over to their house, you had to put your cell phones because they felt like technology was a distraction to them. And they... um, would actually keep their phones in those boxes most of the time so that they could just have conversations and be present with each other. Or one other very dear friend of mine who a few years ago when he was looking at grad schools, I remember he, um, he felt like out of this calling, as he and his wife were getting ready to move, he researched and called and even went and visited churches in the cities where the grad schools were. And he picked his grad school um, only in one of the places he felt like there was a church community he could really be a part of even though it wasn't his first pick of schools. And I'm not saying that you need to do that, any one of those things, all right? But, but as I saw people do that, my first thought was always, that's strange, right? Like, what are you doing? And then my second thought was always like, oh, that's beautiful too. That what you're doing is sort of fighting against those pressures of the world in some way, whatever way looks right for you to try to live out that calling to community. When we live in such an individualistic society, Um, we're not going to be able to be the church that Jesus calls us to be without figuring out in different ways for different ones of us um, ways to push back against those pressures, all right? So that's the big application. We need to fight for community and just think about what that could mean for you, right? Some of you guys do that well. Some of us have to process it, but don't, you know, I'm not telling you to do some specific thing. But now let's talk about a specific thing that (laughs) that I'm putting forward to think about, Okay. And I actually always feel weird about doing this in sermons because I so rarely do. But um, we're taking a break from Romans to talk about the fact. So starting in September, we're going to be launching ongoing church-wide small groups um, as a way for us to try to live out some of these callings. All right? Um, And so let me first try to describe what we're doing and why and then say a few things about how that connects with us. All right? So what are we doing for church-wide small groups? Um, One of the things that you might have noticed in our reading in Acts 2, um, we mentioned it but didn't dig into it much, is that the believers, they met in the temple courts, right? And they also met in each other's homes. There are these larger public things that they would do together as the church, and there were these smaller, more intimate things that they would do. And a lot of what we do right now at Kish is temple courts kind of stuff, right? Like this, this is temple courts kind of stuff. You know, youth group, church events, you know, these kind of big things. They're that kind of level. There's some really cool home-to-home kind of things that we do, um, things like women's Bible study or mom's night out, but they're kind of limited in scope, right? And 
especially like those two, at least half of our congregation is excluded from. <laughs> but, um, but those are wonderful things. But what we want to do is try to do something broader and you know, more church-wide that, um, that, that provides another opportunity for people to get that kind of house-to-house connection. All right? So here's what we're actually doing. To start, you'll, you've probably noticed it in your bulletin or in the back. There's a little slip. But we're launching six groups to start. Um, there's a place to sign up. And here's what those groups are going to do. First, every other week... Um, the group's going to get together, and there's the night of the week and time printed there in your bulletin. Um, every other week, they'll get together for like an hour and 15 minutes, and you'll you know, have some snacks and watch a little video and have a discussion time on some Bible stuff and then pray for each other. And then, in addition, once a month, we're asking each of those groups to do some other thing together, and that's meant to be more flexible, and that could be like have a meal together or go to the park or go to a ball game or whatever you, know, you guys kind of want as a group of people, but a way to kind of be just relationally connected to each other. And that's the plan. That's what, that's what we're going to be doing with them to start. And I know a lot of you might have specific practical questions about that. I'm happy to visit after church if you want to ask me. I would also love it if you would ask me some of those questions because next week um, we're going to talk a little more about community and stuff. And I'm hoping if you ask some practical questions about how we're doing it that I can answer them then as well because I'm sure other people are wondering. All right? That's what we're doing. If I could just say a couple things then about why. Part of that is that everything we discussed in the, you know, the first part of this sermon is true, that living as a community of faith is crucial and that it isn't just going to happen if we don't try to like, be intentional about it and it isn't just going to happen on Sunday mornings, um, that the level of connection that we see in the church and scripture is way more than you get in like an hour you know, and then coffee and fellowship for 15 minutes. That's great, but that's not enough. Second, small groups are a way... To do that, that is concrete, and you can actually kind of work in the modern world, right? If you just are like, I'm going to do more community in general, <laughs> I mean, at least for me, that never works, right? <laughs> when I'm just like, I'm going I'm to exercise more, right? That doesn't work. What I have to do is come up with a specific kind of thing that I can put into my schedule and commit to. And so by having something on a specific night of the week at a specific place, we're hoping to do that. And while we're not touching on it as much this morning... Small groups are also really important for discipleship and growing to be more like Jesus. Um, We cannot get everything we need to grow as a Christian in an hour and a half on a Sunday morning either. Um, Now, I'm not saying that if you go to a small group, you magically now have everything you need to grow as a Christian, right? Discipleship is something that takes all of your life. That's a natural next step. So that's what's happening. Um, Then just let me say a few little things about what that looks like for us. First, just practically, if you want to sign up, there's little flyers in your bulletin. And um, you can write which, the letters that correspond to the groups or whatever that you'd be interested in. And then um, we'll have them next week. You can put them in the offering this week. There's a little box in back, and there's more flyers in back, too, if you didn't get one. Um, but fill it out. And um, my two requests, one, are that if you could try to choose kind of airing on night of the week rather than just like, this is my favorite person on the list, um, that would be great just because I'd love to see people have opportunities to meet some new folks, right, and not just have like friend groups. And B, well, I know some of us will struggle. If, if you're the kind of person who looks at that and is like, oh, any night of the week works, then please write down all the letters because Linda and I are going to have to try to sort these into somewhat even groups in a couple weeks and that would help us a ton. Or, you know, write down a couple letters if you'd be up for a couple of those. That's practically what we're doing. Then let me just speak a little bit more to a few of you guys who I feel like are in different particular places, okay? First of all, I know some of you um, aren't very connected at Kish. You come on Sunday mornings sometimes or even frequently and maybe like help with 
some little thing on Sunday mornings, but you feel disconnected with the kind of community of people here um, at church. And I know I've talked to some of you that feel that way. And if that's you, like, this, this is for you, right? Like, it's also for other people, but a lot of my heart in seeing us do this is providing a way for those of you who don't know a lot of people and don't feel connected to find a way to enter into relationship with some people that you don't know that isn't the, the, the like scary thing that is the fellowship hall on Sunday morning, right, with 100 people, but where you can get to know a few couples and, and be known and enter into that relationship. Second, if you are f- extremely connected at Kish or you feel extremely connected um, and you feel um, like this is silly or not something you need, Two thoughts. On the one hand, um, you might be right. Um, I'm not, like I said, I'm not in the business of telling everyone what they have to do. And there's certainly people who, for other life reasons in terms of connection, especially if you're connected in other kind of small group ways to people in, at Kish, right? Like, you, you totally have my permission to, to be wise about your time and that and not feel pressured. But I would encourage you to at least think about it. And the reason is because relationships are not just about what you get out of them, right? That's the individualistic way of viewing relationships. Relationships are equally about what you give to the people you're in relationship with. And many of you who are the most connected are the people that I would just love to see, you know, I mean, gifted to, to some of the people that, um, that don't have a lot of relationship connections at Kish. And then the last group, those of us who feel really busy. <laughs> Um, I feel you on when we talk about this, and I know that whenever we talk about some new thing we're doing, it can feel like just adding one more thing to a really busy schedule. And again, two, two sides of that, because on the one hand, that might be the case for you, especially if you are really busy, and that includes a lot of you know, ways that you're living out your faith and connected with Jesus' body. There are some of you who are really engaged in lots of different ways in the church and ministry, and I do not want you to burn out, and I do not mean this to be telling you that you have to add one more thing to your schedule, all right? Again, you, you have Jesus' permission, if that's you, um, to, to not feel guilty um, about, about investing in it. But if you feel like you're really busy and, a significant, and some significant part of that isn't your faith, I mean, it is worth thinking hard about this because I don't have, I mean, I don't have a way to sugarcoat it, right? But like, the reality is that if we're going to seek to be a part of Jesus' community and live out our faiths, we are going to have to make that a priority in our schedules. And so if that's not really a part of your schedules, it might involve making sacrifices in other areas. But I will tell you this, because I know that's hard. Um, I've been involved with or run different small group ministries over the years at a couple of churches. And what's interesting when you're trying to like draw people into them or start small groups or whatever is people always talk about how busy they are and how they just feel like they can't possibly find the time to do one. But almost without fail, when I've seen people you know, like connect with one anyway and be a part of it for like six months... Um, suddenly it's like their favorite thing that happens in the week, right? Suddenly it's this thing that they're deeply glad that they've done. And the reason is because as much as community is a calling that Jesus calls us into, it's also a huge blessing. And, and in a sense, what you're doing is scheduling a night of the week on which to experience that blessing, right? So that's where things stand. Again, feel freedom as you process through that, but I'm, we're encouraging you guys to think about it. And do let me know if you have any questions about the practical sides of things or want to talk about what we're doing more. But if you are interested, um, please get signed up. Um, 
And also just be a little bit excited. Be excited about that vision of the church that we talked about. Man, I mean, when you, when you see people living in Jesus-centered community, it's, it's like nothing else the world has seen, right? It has a power to bless and heal and do incredible things. Um, it's beautiful stuff. And so whether you do it through a small group like we're trying to launch or whether you pursue that calling in other ways, let's all join together to try to be that kind of community that Jesus calls us to. Would you guys pray with me? Oh, Father, I thank you for the many people I'm in relationship with that you have blessed me with and pray that you would help us all to grow more and more to be a community that shows your love in the way that we love and live together with each other. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, um, who founded us together as his people and is the head of us, his body. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing? We've only scratched the surface And only had just one glimpse We've tasted of your glory But there's so much more Standing on the horizons Where earth collides with heaven You're longing for your children To cry out for
Amen. It is good to worship with all of you guys this morning. Um, there's like a million things going on, <laughs> kind of said, between small groups and all this stuff starting next week and things. So please let me um, know or let someone else from church know if you have any questions. If you're visiting with us this morning, please say hello to the person next to you. Or if you're not visiting with us this morning and you don't know the person standing next to you, say hello to them, which might actually work better. Um, and please join us. We've got coffee and food and stuff in the back for fellowship time. Now go with the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace today and forever. Amen. Oops.